The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. The verse that the pastor made comment about, uh, this is my father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. That's a good deal about what we're going to preach about tonight. So I thought, well, if Caleb is really walking with the Lord and knows the Lord, he'll surely sing something that goes with this message. And sure enough, he did. So how many of you are happy about that? Isn't that amazing? So how many of you are wondering if he was walking with the Lord or not? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Thank the Lord. Thank you for the good singing. All right, we're in the book of the Revelation, chapter 11. If you would, uh, hold in your Bible uh, Isaiah chapter 9 as well. Just mark it somehow with a ribbon or your Bible or do something. And uh, then we'll be able to turn there real quickly together uh, when it's time. And then we'll be right back to our text. But uh, just have it ready and that'll uh, cause uh, us to be able to move quickly there. Now before we stand and read the text, <clears throat> I know that uh, the pastor mentioned that you're in the uh, book of the Revelation chapter 2 and 3 on the letters to the seven churches, and I know you have to be receiving and benefiting from uh, that series of uh, the book of the Revelation. But back in Revelation chapter 1, this is a, such a key verse to understanding, in my opinion, and not mine alone, uh, that it is such a key verse in understanding how the book of the Revelation flows. And there in Revelation 1.19, watch this, he said to John there on the Isle of Patmos, uh, he said to John, write the things which thou hast seen. Well, that's what is, he's just experienced in verse 1 through 18. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are. That would be chapter 2 and 3 in the time of the letters to the seven churches. Uh, I like to, uh, again, I say I like to, I'm not alone, it's not original with me, but I like to look at the uh, churches of the chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia, minor, that these are seven literal congregations that existed in Asia Minor. But more than that, they are also uh, churches that are representative of this entire church age. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but I don't care. Uh, I'm very confident that that's a fact, that these are churches that were not only literal congregations that were being addressed by Jesus. Might be an interesting thing to remember the significance and the importance of the church while the significance of the church is being downplayed in our day and time that the last thing Jesus said from heaven was to his churches. So we might want to remember that. And uh, so anyway, that's the things which are. You and I now live in that age, that era. And uh, when you say that you believe in dispensations, there are some that take extreme dispensationalism and such as that. But obviously in the Word of God there are dispensations or time frames by which God works and, and uh, His ways and His workings are divided up. So write the things which I have seen, and the things which are, now watch this, and the things which shall be hereafter. 
The things which shall be hereafter started in John chap, uh, Revelation and chapter number 4. When he said, he heard a voice that said, Come up hither, and John went up. And then he starts talking about the things which shall be hereafter. I think it's important that we remember that. Uh, and as we come to verse number uh, 15 in the Revelation and chapter 11. <clears throat> now let's stand and read together. If you need to remain seated for health or physical reasons, that's just fine. Otherwise, we'll stand and honor the Word of God. Now don't forget we have those CDs back there. I'll be glad to talk to any of you about it, the Amen Quartet, the Heartland uh, groups, they have two CDs that are there and hope to be making more in the near future. All right, so we're in verse number 15. And the seventh angel sounded. If somebody says, this is a strange place to begin. Well, just let's read the text and then we're going to do some explanation on this. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces, read Revelation 4 and 5, you'll see how they're mentioned again, that they sat before the throne of God. The four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. I think I want to call attention to the verse begins by, The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and talks about the wrath that is coming, and then it ends by saying, And shouldest God should destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Father, we pray your blessings upon our time together in the Word. I want to ask you one more time, Lord, to help me. I want to communicate thy Word in a manner that is clear and helpful to this assembly, to every individual life, and to the assembly corporately. I pray that you would give us hearing ears. May we not be distracted by things that can wait. And I pray that you would have our attention, that by your Holy Spirit you would arrest our attention, and that your people might take heart and be 
encouraged, exhorted, anyone who is without Jesus, might they come under the conviction of their need of Jesus Christ and salvation. So I pray now that you would bless the reading of thy word and this effort to proclaim your word. We'll thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless you. You may be seated. On Sunday, January the 10th, that would have been, let's see, I, I think I got this right about six weeks ago. Um, we went to church at Southwest Baptist Church on Sunday morning. And our pastor, Brother Gaddis, uh, preached a powerful, powerful message on the impending peril of the family. The impending peril of the family. And that's all I'm going to say about it. If, if I start telling you I want to re-preach it, we don't have time for that. But it was just a, a wonderful message. So after church, we went to our house. Our son and his wife and their four girls came to the house. And uh, we had our roast and carrots, potatoes, and gravy and had a wonderful meal and good time together. And then afterwards, uh, my wife and I and my son and his wife, we were talking about the message that morning and how uh, dynamic it was and just powerful and convicting and, in, in every way. God used it in a wonderful way. And then the conversation went to the fact that um, we not only ought to be concerned about the impending peril, uh, the threat to the family, but to our own nation. I mean, after all, uh, isn't it true that if the nation is going to have the fabric that it's supposed to have, that it's important that the families be what they are supposed to be. And the demise of the family contributes largely in an incredible way to the demise of a country or a society. So we were talking about that. And in the process of time, we got to the discussion about some of the things that are taking place in our day and time, and how that the element of the left uh, in our political uh, scheme of things, how that they are pushing and pushing and pushing, promoting socialism. Now, as many of you know, socialism has a record in history of only failure. Only failure. There are no success stories for societies, nations, that went to socialism. There are no, well, yeah, but you can think about, there aren't any. They're O for, O for what? O for however many have tried socialism. There's no success story anywhere. And yet, it feels like that we're on a runaway train headed towards socialism in this country. I think anybody that would deny that has not been paying much attention to what has taken place over a long period of time, but how it's escalated here in recent months. It's just incredible. And I can't help but think, like many of you, I'm sure would think the same way, that if we continue on this path and the train arrives and this becomes a socialist country, then my kids, kids 
are going to know nothing about the kind of America you and I were raised in at all. They'll know nothing about it at all. Well, they might read about it in history. Not here. I mean, we're not even getting accurate history in our public education and higher education the way it is. So, it's going to lead to the demise of America as we've known it. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me a sick feeling in my stomach to think about the demise of America. And I haven't read the whole book, referenced it, but the classic uh, work of Gibbons on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire and uh, the course that was followed, the course that was taken, so similar to what we have seen over the past century and a half in the United States of America, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, or you could say the rise and the fall of any society. And to think about the rise and the fall of the United States of America. If you got uh, red blood in you and you love the flag and the red, white, and blue, that's a sickening thought. In talking about that, my wife said, well, if America as it has been is no more, if the United States as it has been is no more, she said, who's going to save the world? My wife Sandra asked that. Who's going to save the world? Now, she wasn't trying to be cute, and she actually put it in just a very simple way. Who's going to save the world? And many of you would you know, connect the dots and you can see. Uh, what she is really asking is, who would it then be that would stop, let's say, Japanese imperialism? That was the major reason for our involvement in World War II, when they attacked Pearl Harbor and got the United States involved. Who, who would stop that? Who would stop or, or, or resist Russian communism and the spread of communism? Who would fight Islamic terrorism? Who would fight Chinese communism if there's no United States of America? My wife asked that question. And my answer was Jesus. Now, I wasn't trying to be cute. I'm a smart aleck, there's no doubt about it according to my wife and my kids. But nonetheless, I wasn't trying to be cute. So who's going to save the world? Now, she knows this. She knows God. And she knows the Bible and all of that. But she's just thinking about if there is no United States of America, if there is no such force uh, for good and for right to stop the communism, whether it's Russia, China, or wherever it might come from, Islamic terrorism, or whatever imperialistic uh, uh, society rises up to try to take control of the world, uh, America has been a wonderful force to stop that and promote freedom. It, it has been, and I'm thankful for that, very thankful for that. But who would there be to save the world? And I said, Jesus. Now, the reason I answered that is because, the reason I answered like that, I had just come through an, another time through the Bible. I mentioned this morning that I'll go through the Bible in my reading about a little over five times in a year. And I had just finished, I just finished coming through the book of the Revelation. 
And so, as I had finished the book of Revelation, this passage that I'm reading right here uh, got a hold of me somehow. God just seemed to highlight it in my reading. And so, I, uh, I, I uh, wrote this passage down on January the 11th and said, I've got to preach this. After I said it, I thought of this passage and I wrote it down. I said, I, I made a note, I've got to study this, I've got to preach it. And so, I've been working on it off and on since uh, January the 11th and finished it last Thursday night. Finally got my notes all in place. And you may think, you know, you need to go back and try that again. And, and that may be the case. I don't know, but I'm going to give it my best shot tonight. And um, when I said that Jesus would be the answer to who will save the world, um, <clears throat> I, I answered that way because... Not only will Jesus govern the world, only Jesus can govern the world. Now I'm going to run that by again. Somebody said, oh, no, come on now, we've had a lot of government. Uh, I remember I said a moment ago, and whether you agreed or not, it's, it, I, I'm very confident so, that there has been no success, um, uh, successful story of a socialistic society. Society has gone into socialism. No, no successes. As a matter of fact, has there been a monarchy that over the long haul has succeeded? As a matter of fact, has there been a democracy that is assured of perpetuation? Or a republic? That's what I said. That the reality is only Jesus can govern the world, and not only can he govern the world, he will govern the world. That though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. And we have a passage here that talks about that very thing. You know, one of the things I think we ought to remember is uh, people get all caught up at the Christmas season and and it kind of comes and goes, you know. If you have Isaiah chapter uh, number 9 there ready, look down here. Uh, I'm just, I just want to remind you of this. It's not like I think you didn't know this before. I just want to remind you of it. Look down in Isaiah 9, 6, a verse we all love. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Oh, isn't Christmas wonderful? Oh, I, I guess it's wonderful that Jesus was born. I'm not sure the season is really that pleasing. Well, I, I don't want to pour cold water on the service, but let's go on here. Uh, For us, unto us a child is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that means he's going to govern. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Watch this. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I don't, I don't mean to whiz through that, but if I stop on that, my soul, we could be there a long time. And look at verse number 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This child that is born and his son is given is going to have the government upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. How many of you believe, well, that's already happened? Well, nobody in their right mind thinks that's already happened. Uh, the history of humanity is since the fall has been written in blood. 
and wars and wars and, and uh, man talks about peace and prepares for war. That's the way it's always been. And there will continue to be war. But of the increase of his government and peace, look at it again. This is the second time it's mentioned up in verse number uh, Oh, over in our text it said forever and ever. Now here it says, There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Somebody said, How's that going to happen? Well, he answers that too. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. <laughs> this is going to happen. God's going to see to it that Jesus will reign forever and ever. He, is everybody listen, will govern. The government will be upon His shoulder, and of His government and peace there shall be no end. Hallelujah. That's a blessing. Now back to our text. Because this account gives us some insight into the transfer of power. So we heard that a lot here lately, didn't we? Now, Mr. Trump wasn't cooperating with uh, Mr. Biden in the what? Transfer of power. So there's a real significance, I'm sure, and more than I or most anybody would understand unless you've been there, what goes on when there is a president that is going out and a president that is coming in. It is true. There is a real transfer of power. But there's a bigger one than that coming. Because there is going to be a transfer of power. And it is uh, talked about here in our passage, verse number 15 through verse number 19. Now, before we get into the text... I have to explain something about these five verses that will help us understand that um, understand what is going to happen in the rest of chapter, uh, not only in chapter 11, but in chapter 12 on through. I've got to explain this. Um, these five verses are what could be called, now you got to follow me carefully here. These five verses are what could be called exergesia. Now somebody said, I don't know that word. Well, I didn't either. As I studied reading about it, I thought, well, you can always look it up and find out what it means. So I did. And exergesia, it simply means this. It's part Greek, part Latin. The word just simply means this. It, it, it is a form of parallelism. Okay, now here's what that means. It simply means that there is one powerful idea that is repeated. And the only thing that changes is the way that it is stated. Let's listen carefully. These verses state a large, powerful, significant idea that then begins to be restated in chapter 12 and goes all the way through chapter 22. So what you have here, let's, let's try it another way. 
if you take verse number five through uh, 15 rather through 19, what you basically have is the rest of the revelation in a nutshell. And what goes after chapter 11, beginning in chapter 12, now watch this, all the way into the eternal state, all that way comes under these words. And the seventh trumpet sounded. And then he describes in verse number 15 through 19, uh, in a nutshell, what happens under the seventh trumpet. And we have to understand that the seventh trumpet is not a little blast and it's over. It's long. So that it goes all the way to the end of the revelation. All right, let's try to look at it like this. When you read uh, Revelation 11, now listen to this carefully, and what has led up to this, by the time you come down through verse number 14, can I have your attention up here? You're at the middle of the tribulation period. At 11.14, you are at, that's not the time, that's the place here. At chapter 11, verse 14, you are at the middle of the tribulation period. And at verse 15 on, you are at the last part of the tribulation and all that follows the tribulation period. Okay. It's all under the seventh trumpet. Now, kind of keep that in your mind. That these events, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, was that, were there six before? Oh yeah, there were six before. They all have to do with judgment that was taking place in the first half of the tribulation period, which simply means Jesus has come and taken the saints into heaven. And then the events of the seven-year tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, all kinds of ways to describe it, but that's, that uh, tribulation period begins, and it is divided in two distinct parts, and the first part, is covered up to chapter 11 and verse 14. And then from verse 15 on is beyond the half of the tribulation period and on into the eternal state. Incredible. Now, out of verse 15 through 19, stay with me please. Out of verse 15 through 19, I want to call attention to what I'm calling the, the sights and sounds of this last half of the tribulation period in this nutshell, verse 15 through 19. The sights and the sounds and the personages, the persons, the people involved in that part of the tribulation period. It's after Jesus comes. This isn't when Jesus comes in power and great glory. That's coming. But that's not what this is talking about. This is after Jesus has taken us out. The tribulation period has become the middle of the tribulation period. The Antichrist is exposed, and the temple of God is defiled, and the earth begins to experience this convulsion under the judgment of God. Yeah. So let's look at some of the things that take place during that last half of the tribulation period, according to verse 15 through 19. Watch this, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven. Now quite a commotion was stirred 
in heaven and earth at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which is not unusual because this has happened several times in history where events like the deliverance of Egypt from, uh, from, uh, uh, of Israel from the land of Egypt, the uh, Egyptian bondage, the birth of Jesus, that events that stir heaven and earth. This is one of them. The seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven. That's what the scripture says. And uh, as you read through then, watch this. Oh, man, I hope I haven't lost you. If you go chapter 12 on through chapter number 19, then you'll have covered the rest of the tribulation period all the way up to the time of Jesus coming in power and great glory to establish His kingdom in chapter 12 through chapter 19. And there are many times that the voices are heard. It says there were many voices in heaven. Well, as you read, that's in a nutshell. If you read chapter 12 through chapter number 19, you'll see many times that there are voices that are heard. For instance, there's the voice of many waters. What is that reference to? Many waters. Well, did you ever stand by Niagara Falls? If you've ever stood by Niagara Falls, then it's just a constant roar. And I, I mean, it's just an incredible sound or any big falls. It's just an incredible roar, an incredible sound. And so these many voices have to do with the, the multitudinous part of it. There are just many, millions, millions, just many voices. There's the sound of many waters. And then there is the sound of a voice that is like thunder, like it was, was Mount Sinai. During the tribulation period, there'll be a voice that comes from heaven that is like thunder. Ohio, you know what tornadoes and thunderstorms and uh, such as that are. You know what clashes of thunder in Oklahoma. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been to where I could hear the lightning at the same time I saw it. That's closer than you want to be to lightning. Somebody say amen to that. And the sound of it is just incredible. And when that thunder comes, it's just mighty. It's just powerful. It's just incredible. It's almost indescribable. It was raining, and I had gutters stopped up. And I said, I believe it's stopped raining now. I'm going to clean this out because more rain was coming. And I cleaned this gutter out, and I went to clean it out and just got on the ladder. And I had one of those cases where right over there, I saw it and heard it at the same time. Scared me out of my ever-loving mind. I thought, I don't care what kind of shape that gutter's in. I'm out of here, you know. <laughs> Got in the house. And can you imagine when this time comes, and it's a time of the demonstration of the wrath and the indignation of God about the iniquity and the sin that not only is taking place at that particular time, but has for the past 6,000 years, ladies and gentlemen. And this judgment from God is coming. The voice comes, and it's the sound of thunder same as as was Mount Sinai. There will also be harps, the voice of harps and harpers singing. That's going to be during this tribulation time. This described in verse 15 through 19, elaborated on in more detail, chapter 12 on. Read chapter 12 through 19, you'll see it, that there's a time when there's going to be the voice of harpers harping on their harps and singing. There's going to be a voice of a mighty angel flying in the midst of heaven, calling for everyone to hear. Think about that. No, I said, think about that. Somebody said, do you believe in angels? My soul, yes, I believe the Bible. 
there's going to come a time in the tribulation period, there's going to be a certain event in the last half of the tribulation period when there'll be a voice uh, of a mighty angel flying in heaven calling attention to the acts and the works of God. Amazing. There's going to be the voice of angels announcing the fall of Babylon. You've surely read it in 17 and 18. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great harlot is fallen. That'll be announced by an angel. Those are the voices that he's talking about here. He said that there were voices that were heard. And you read chapter 12 and on, and you'll see the voices that are heard. The angel that'll be announcing. There'll also be, in chapter 19, when Jesus comes in power and great glory, and it's time for him to come and establish his kingdom, there's also going to, listen to this, there's going to be voices that are crying, Hallelujah! Uh, that, no, actually, the voices will actually be saying that. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Why? Because the time has come for Jesus to come to this earth, judge iniquity and sin, and establish a kingdom of righteousness. When Jesus comes to establish his earthly kingdom, it'll be the time when Jesus shows the world how government is supposed to operate. It'll be the first time there's been a government of only justice. It'll be the first time that there's been a government of only righteousness. Yes, including the days of Solomon. Yes, including the glory days of David. This will be the first time that any government has exercised upon this earth only righteousness and justice. No wonder they're crying hallelujah. Can somebody say amen to that? Now, don't get excited and shout hallelujah. It'd scare somebody to death, but I'm just saying. Isn't this something to be saying hallelujah about? Jesus comes. That's what's happened. See, what he's doing is talking about this. He set the table here in verse 15 through 19. It's all in a nutshell. And you read ahead and you can hear all of those voices. Read about them. Why are they shouting that God is judging the world? Why are they shouting that Jesus is coming to destroy uh, evil and wickedness and people are going to die and they're going to be conquered? Why are they shouting hallelujah? Well, it's not because there's any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but there's great pleasure in God vindicating His own name and vindicating His own righteousness. That's what it's always about when you rejoice that the enemy has fallen. It's not just that the enemy has fallen, they're down. No, no, God didn't create people to be rebellious. I said He didn't create them for that purpose. But that His righteousness and His name is vindicated is reason to shout and to rejoice. Now, that's one thing, the voices that come. Look at another thing, verse 16. Four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God. Did you go to the worship service? Somebody says. Oh, yes, I'm telling you. What would you do? Oh, we praise God. It was praise and worship. We praise and worship. Well, praise is one thing and worship is another thing. In the Bible, and according to the definition of the word, uh, these men worship God. Uh, these 24 elders. Somebody said, who are those 24 elders? Oh, I'm not going to get into a big discussion. Could it be that they are 24 representatives, 12 of the Old Testament era, 12 of the New Testament? It, that's very possible. Could it be that 12 would represent the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 in the New Testament? The 12 apostles? That's very possible. 
Well, exactly who was it? Well, who did he say they are? 24 elders. You got to have more than that? If you had to have more than that, he'd tell us more than that. Okay, so now we can move on from that. So look down in verse number 16. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats, they're sitting no more. They are not, moved from their upright position and they fall on their faces. It's not like it said they bowed. They fall. Something so awesome and incredible is happening, it must be, that they lose the ability to be upright and they fall. But they don't fall just to fall. They fall that they might worship humbly before the one that is on the throne. That's what they're doing. I tell you, it's really disturbing. To me, it's very disturbing how few people are willing to bow and worship God. I don't, I don't bow. I remember preaching on worship one time and implementing worship in our services at Southwest Baptist Church. And I had a family leave the church. You're trying to make Muslims out of us, getting us all down here and bowing. What? What kind of nonsense is that? That's what the word means. It means to come low. It means to get low. It means to prostrate oneself, to show honor and to worship. Does everybody listen to this? It has to do with our worship of God. It's really a sad thing. How many Christians right now, God can speak to them during a church service, give the invitation, nobody bows about nothing. If we brought an unbeliever into a church service and said, this has been our worship service, and we put them up in the balcony of Southwest Baptist Church and put plexiglass up there, and the people down here didn't see the people up there, and the people up there could see what's going on down there. And when the service is over, if you had hundreds of people out there, and the service is over, and we interview the people that didn't understand anything about what was going on, and we give them the definition of the word worship, and they say, this people just had the worship service. Did you see them worship? Well, I saw three or four at the end of the service that, Looked like they were, according to this. They got down low. They bowed themselves. Oh, I do it in my heart. I'm not going to do it physically. Hey, you got a pride problem. Now, if you're getting as old as some of us and you can't get down and get back up, that might be another story, but there's still a way to humble ourselves and to bow before the Lord. And if you can bow and get up, I wonder what's wrong with bowing to talk to God. It's what worship is. It's coming low before Him. It's prostrating oneself. It is coming low before God. He said, I dwell in the high and holy place. Remember at the end of the service this morning? And with him also that is of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. There's no pride in heaven. I said, there's no pride in heaven. These are 24 elders. These are, hey, can I have your attention? These are fairly significant people. They are fairly significant people. And they fell before the Lord to worship. And you won't? On what grounds? I, just, I don't want to do that. I don't, I'm not doing that. They might be seen of man. Uh, if you're serious about God, then what men think about it is the absolute least of your worries. I said if we're serious about God, what men think about it is the absolute least of our concerns. I said, the, if we're serious about God, it's the absolute last thing on our mind what anybody else is thinking about it. Now, if you're not serious about God and it's all about the opinion of people, then I can see that. Are you in verse 16? 
They've done this before. They did it in chapter 4. They did it in chapter 5. Fell down. These 24 elders, they fell down and worshiped God. It's not the same event. They did it one under one condition in chapter 4. They did another condition in chapter 5. They did another condition in chapter 11. The four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God. <clears throat> Look at verse 19. And this is the vision that John saw. This is what God showed John concerning the future that's all played out in this vision from chapter 12 through chapter 19 and on, even into the eternal state. Look in, look in verse 19. And the, here's what John saw. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament. Whoa. Is there a temple in heaven? Uh, let's see here. Yeah, there sure is. The temple of God was opened in heaven. You've read the book of Hebrews, surely, haven't you? And when they made the tabernacle, when they made the temple, it was a, after the pattern of, or it was patterned after, after what? Where? Heaven. Heaven. Brother Sam, what do you think about the search for the ark? Well, I know right where it is. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple... The Ark of the Testament. The Ark of His Testament. There. Tell me, how could the Ark get it to heaven? How many of you believe when Jesus comes, He's going to get us to heaven? Then what is the big problem you see with Him somehow getting the Ark to heaven? Okay, we've got to move on. Because so, I tend to get real sarcastic about this kind of stuff. And I don't mean to do that, but I'm just saying. This is, this is what's taking place. Look in verse 19. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Somebody said, I've read about that before somewhere. It was at Mount Sinai when God appeared to them in Exodus in chapter 19 when God came and He came with thunderings and He came with lightning and He came with the voice of God from heaven and He came with a great quaking and a great shaking and He said there's going to be great hail. I'm just telling you that during that tribulation period a reality upon this earth will be that God is going to deal in judgment and there will be awful fear so that if you read this account all the way into chapter um, number, I, 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 it's escaped me right now. It's when the great kings of the earth and the great men and the noble men and the very well-known men, the rich men, the powerful men, they are all fearful before God and they pray for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them rather than face the judgment of God. Now, that's what's going to happen. So those are the sounds, sights and sounds of that rest of the tribulation period that plays out till Jesus comes back in power and glory. But what comes of all of this? In other words, um, to what end? What is taking place? Well, here's what's taking place. We're going to go back through the text one more time. And we're going to see what takes place. What takes place is this incredible transfer of power. Look in verse number 15. The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, look at this, it's time. The kingdoms of this world 
are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, somebody said, what, what comes of all of this? I mean, you have all these sights that you pointed out. You have all these sounds. You have all these personages that are involved, the great angel that's crying, and the people that shout hallelujah when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period in power and great glory. And you, you hear about, so what's going to come of all of this? What's coming of all of this is going to be the fact that Satan is done. Oh, what is coming from the works of the great tribulation period in the last half, and then when Jesus comes back in power and great glory, means that the God of this world uh, that blinds the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them, his day of power and his day of authority is done. It's done. It's not done right here at the middle of the tribulation period, but it is done at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years upon the earth, and then the devil is loosed for a little season. That must be a little bit of time, a very little bit of time, and what Jesus is going to do is cast him into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, and he ceases to be in existence to this earth, to God's people, to people in general, it's over. It's done. His power is done. Is he powerful? He's powerful. He's powerful. You listen to some of these Pentecostals and they'll say, you need to tell the devil. I just told the devil. Oh, boy. Aren't you something? When Michael the archangel was approached by the devil about the body of Moses, he didn't say, let me tell you something, Satan. Here's what he said. The Lord rebuked thee, Satan. I, he turned him over to the Lord. He, he, even Michael, the archangel, Michael means one like God. I mean, here's an angel of significant power, an archangel. And when he was confronted with the devil, he turned it. You think the devil's not powerful? The Lord rebuked thee, Satan. He turned him over to Jesus. That's what you and I are supposed to do. Well, that's what's going to happen, this transfer of power. He's powerful. He blinds the world of unbelief. Oh, I said the world of unbelief. They're blinded by the devil. The effects of his power and his influence are everywhere in this world. I get angry almost every time I read that the devil said to Jesus at the time of the temptation, you bow down and worship me. Can you imagine? You bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms that you see of this earth. You bow down and worship me. Because you know what he thought? He was gaining the place of God, that he had all and possessed all power. And Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And Satan departed and angels came and ministered to Jesus Christ. I'm happy to report that on the authority of the Bible and the clear Word of God and our little text here tonight that tells a little bit about a great big picture that's going to come, there's going to be a transfer of power, and it means that Satan will not be able to work. There'll be no more Mussolini's. There'll be no more Hitler's. There'll be no more despots and dictators, killers and bloodthirsty murderers sitting in places of authority. 
No more. No more. Jesus is going to reign upon this earth for a thousand years and then takes us into the eternal state when the devil is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. And he's there forever and ever. And don't forget, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's where he's going. Transfer of power. Uh, look at the response. Somebody says, well, that's good. That's great. Well, uh, heaven gets a little more excited about it than some people do. And they said in verse number 17, the elders bowed down and worshiped. Remember in verse 16? Look at verse 17. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Uh, listen, remember this morning we were talking about when Jesus walked upon this earth, there were those that thought he ought to set upon the throne of David, restore Israel back to prominence in the world again. And they knew that he was the Messiah. They knew that he was the anointed one. They knew that he was the Son of God. And they couldn't understand what he's talking about dying for because he's supposed to take the throne of David and reign. And he's supposed to reestablish Israel as domination, uh, a dominant or prominent country in the countries of the world. He's supposed to do that. And, and Jesus said he's going to die. But hold on just a second. When he comes this time, he is not coming to die. When he comes the next time, he's not coming as the meek and lowly lamb. When he comes the next time, he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is going to reign. And he's going to take the power and the authority from the devil. And the, and the, oh, look at verse 17. And they bow down and they say, We give thee thanks to the one that is was and is and shall come, watch, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power in this reign. Can I have your attention? Mm, help me, Lord. The power has always belonged to Jesus. I said the authority, power, has always belonged to Jesus. Well, then why hasn't he reigned? Isn't he? Well, doesn't look like the world like he's reigning to me. Well, that's not the most important thing right now. He will when it's time. But isn't he reigning on the throne of your heart? My kingdom is not of this world. Now Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not going to do what leaders and kings and people expect the Messiah to do. When I come and rule and reign, it is not authority that is coming like the world has known. And when Jesus comes to reign in power and great glory, look at this, the elders are excited because he has taken to himself thy great power and has reigned. They see that it's coming, that Jesus will reign upon this earth. This is a vision of the future and what's going to take place. And the elders could see Jesus will reign reign upon this earth. Mm. Satan, his work is about done. The elders are ecstatic about it. The government will be upon his shoulders. Now look at verse 18. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath has come. Can I have your attention a little bit? Hopefully. You know the nations of this earth hate God? Uh, that's just an outlandish statement by another Baptist preacher. The nations of the world hate God. I'm not giving my opinion. Uh, why don't you do this? You can find Psalms easy. 
Anybody can. Look at Psalm 2. Let's, let's look there. I didn't mark it and have it ready to turn there, but we can do that. Look at Psalms 2. Look at this. This, this is a prophetic psalm as well as what's going on in the time of the psalmist. Look at this in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth, here's what God said, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We don't want the authority of God. We don't want the control of God. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath. Now when is he going to do that? We're reading about it in Revelation 11. Somebody say amen. Amen. I'm talking about, we're reading about it in Revelation 11, what is stated here in the Psalms of the attitude of the nations and the kings of the world. Somebody said, well, you can't say they hate God. Then why are we not free to preach the gospel in so many nations? Why is it that there is such rejection of the truth in so many nations? Why is it that in our own country, you can feel it, you can feel it, you can feel it, and you can see it. Let's cast us under his bonds. Let's cast asunder his authority. We don't want God telling us what to do. That's been public education for years and years and years. That's affected the pulpits of the United States of America where there is no desire for the authority of God. And it says here in the book of the Revelation that the kingdoms, uh, the nations were angry for, their, for God's wrath has come. They hate God hate his authority, hate his power. Look at the end of verse 18. Here's why. Because he's going to destroy them which destroy the earth. I have a question. What's destroying the earth? Who's destroying the earth? Well, we know that emissions, if they're not under control in the next 10 years, it's going to destroy the earth. The shorelines are going to rise because of global warming. And you can go around the United States of America and where people now live, it's all going to be covered in water and won't even be there because of global warming, because of emissions, because this has to be taken. It's funny that Obama went out to Martha's Vineyard and paid several million dollars for a piece of property that'll soon be underwater, <laughs> according to him. Don't get into politics. Well, I'm just saying something to think about, isn't it? Yeah. No, that's not who's destroying the world. Pipelines aren't destroying the world. There's no evidence that nuclear power destroys the world. What destroys the world? You know who he's coming after? Those are destroying this world. You know what destroys a country? You know what destroys a world? Perversion. Read Romans 1. I said, just read Romans 1. I said, if you haven't read Romans 1 lately, you ought to read Romans 1. 
And what does God do when there is such perversion? What does God do when men are more involved and more committed to the creation than they are the Creator? And if you look at the green-minded people and the tree-huggers, as they are often called in derision, and you look at the people that are intent on saving the planet, I just read in the Psalms that the earth is stable. It ain't going anywhere till God takes it somewhere. And when God takes it somewhere in the way of destruction, it won't be over this process of what man is doing to destroy the planet. What man is doing to destroy the planet is thumb their nose at God. And so read Romans 1, men with men and women with women doing that which is unseemly. And God gives them over to a reprobate mind. You know what it means to have a reprobate mind? There's no ability to think. There's no ability to reason. There is nothing moral. There's no moral power there to reason. I've looked at our nation for the last number of years and I've thought, where is the ability of people to think? Where's the ability of our leaders to even reason? What is taking place here? What happens when God gives a nation over to a reprobate mind? They don't have any ability to think and to reason and to come to righteous conclusions. Therefore, we have a party that's in power in the United States of America right now whose platform is basically everything that is contrary to God. In education, in moral issues and standards, to, to have a president that would exercise his powers to allow males to enter a sport competition with females because they think they're males, females. So therefore, it would just not be right. They would be victimized if they didn't get to do what they want. Somebody help me here. What is taking place? Well, there's no reason. You know, you, there's no ability to reason. And you know who's destroying the world? That kind of thought. Same-sex marriage, sex change operations. Oh, but you don't understand all the psychological deals. Now look, friend, if you're in fact a Christian, you need to get your ideas from the Bible, not from some talk show somewhere. Don't you listen to Oprah and start coming to any conclusions about this or any other nutheads that are out there. I'm just telling you, you better get your ideas from what's right and what's wrong from the Word of the living God because He doesn't skirt these issues. They are addressed very, very clearly. That's ruining the world when people thumb their nose at the moral standard of God. You've got a little microcosm. What brought down Sodom and Gomorrah? What was it? Well, number one, their number one offense was they crowded God out of the picture. They were interested in enterprise, industry. They were interested in plenty. They were interested in abundance. They were interested in themselves. And God, because they worshiped and served the creation more than the Creator, turned them over to a reprobate mind. And when He did, what happened then? Then they became a city of what we know as Sodomites. Their homosexuality, their sexual perversion was such that they, it was so strong that we still use the term to this day, sodomy or sodomites. That's what's ruining the world. It's not emissions and it's not uh, somebody, uh, a, a frog is dying in California so we can't give water down there to California because that frog species might become extinct. The infatuation with pets in this country is just unbelievable. 
I said, it's just unbelievable. The infatuation with what God has made and the ignoring of the God who is. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, that's what's destroying me. Eliminating the, the possibility of a creator God. Corruption in government destroys the world. Corruption in government. I think if most of us knew how deep the swamp is, so to speak, we would be sick. Sick. Utterly sick. I've sat and wondered myself. I wondered, why? We have two senators from the state of Oklahoma, both of them Christian men. One of them, Mr. Inhofe, he came to our church and he gave a testimony. Mr. Langford, I've visited with him on the airplane a couple of times or three. And so these are men that have the fear of God. They love the Lord. Da, 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 da. And I'm wondering, why are they silent? I mean, some liberal out here, some little minor thing happens, they raise this big net, and the next thing you know, everybody in the news media and everything, you say, somebody else has been offended. And while our supposedly conservative people are sitting there with their mouths shut. Why? Why aren't they speaking up? Well, I've been reading some trying to figure this thing out. And they say, well, it's not just that left-leaning side that's uh, involved in the swamp and taking uh, profitable uh, returns from, oh, China and others. It's not just them. It's a, what do they call it? S systemic? Systemic? In our nation's capital. Why don't they investigate this? How could they come to that conclusion? How could this be? Corruption. Corruption in government. If, read the prophets. I challenge you. Next time you read through the prophets, Isaiah, all the way through the minor prophets, look how often God is, listen, coming against his own people in judgment because they are not executing righteous judgment. Corruption. Corruption. It's everywhere. Yeah. Rigged elections destroy the world. He's going to destroy them that destroy the world. That's what the book says. That, the, that kind of corruption does. The shedding of innocent blood. I said the shedding of innocent blood. Are we horrified by the number of murders? I read about Chicago and places like that, but I live in Oklahoma City. Went through a stretch right there in Oklahoma City. I live three blocks from the church. Went through a stretch where in a three-month period, there were uh, six people killed next door to our house in a drug deal. Six people dead. Our next-door neighbors. Six people dead, gang-related. American Indians uh, versus Hispanic gangs. And the American Indian guy got out of prison. He comes to Oklahoma City to get back where he's got the rank in the American Indian gang. He's got to go take out this Hispanic drug dealer. This Hispanic drug dealer has taken over a rent house, though he's not renting it, next door to where my wife and I live. And while we are sleeping 50 feet away, He's killed, and three women are killed, and two of them were pregnant. Got them for six, appropriately, for six murders right next door. Well, right down the street, 
a druggist got robbed again. He said, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And he shot a kid that was 16 years old, went out and chased another one down the street and shot and missed and went back in. And he said the kid moved and, he, and they have the film of him putting five more plugs in that kid laying on the ground right there. Right around the corner is Jimmy's Cafe, and right there at Jimmy's Cafe, right here in this same time period, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, we're not talking about L.A. and New York City, we're talking about Oklahoma, heartland of America, right where my wife and I live in that neighborhood, right there. And around at Jimmy's, they come in, and they take the cook out at 6 o'clock in the morning when the restaurant opens, put a bag over his head, and take a shotgun and blow his head off, right there. That one the people next door to us, down at the drugstore, bang, 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 right there in our neighborhood, four blocks from the church, right here in the United States of America. And we're not talking about Chicago now, New York City and Los Angeles and Miami. We're talking about the heartland of America. Sad, isn't it? The shedding of innocent blood. In the next 15 days, more babies will be murdered than will die of the coronavirus in a year. That's what gets me about all the hypocrisy of let's save lives. Now we're saving lives. Distance, distance, wear those masks, wear those masks. Those of you that have masks on, I'm not being ugly to you, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying, there are those that are imposing powers upon us with an agenda other than your health and other than our safety. And if they really cared, then why aren't they doing something about the drunk drivers that are killing people all over the United States of America? If somebody stood up and cried out against liquor, what do you think they would say? Where did you come from? You can't outlaw liquor. What kind of an idiot are you? I mean, that is absolutely crazy. And yet a drunk driver can drive right down the street in Moore, Oklahoma, drunk as he can be, hit five, six, seven teenagers running in with their track workout along the side of the road, jumps the curb doing 60 miles an hour in his pickup truck and kills three of them on the spot and another one died later. Drunk. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Drunk. We care about your lives. Liars, hypocrites, babies are being slaughtered. Innocent blood is being shed. If you can read your Bible on the third grade level, you'll see that when innocent blood is being shed, the blood that goes into the ground is crying out to the Lord. You've got to understand the metaphor there. God is mindful of everything that is taking place here in the way of violence and the shedding of innocent blood and nothing done about it. It's amazing to me when people go into the White House that we can all of a sudden have the ability to find out who they are and bring them to justice. When people kill people and burn buildings and exercise that kind of violence, we can't seem to find them. Kind of weird, isn't it? That kind of corruption destroys the world. God's going to destroy them that destroy the world. Think about that. Look in verse 18. I'm about done. Under the seventh trumpet, look at verse 18. The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants. What's going to happen under that seventh trumpet? Well, all the things we've talked about and more, but also it's going to be a time of judgment. The great white throne will be under that judgment. I don't care if you're here tonight and you don't know you're saved or you know you're not. Or if you're listening by live stream, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, Savior, 
You need to get that settled before Jesus comes. Don't you believe there are going to be people saved in the tribulation period? Not people that have sat and heard the gospel. Those that have heard the gospel to reject the gospel won't. No, I believe there's going to be many people saved during the tribulation period. The 144,000 are going to preach. Many are going to believe. But it's pretty clear in the book of 2 Thessalonians that those that have heard the Word of God to reject the Word of God, they will be blinded and they will not be saved. And when that seventh trumpet sounds, you're going to be somewhere. When that seventh trumpet sounds, I'm going to be somewhere. I'll either be, if I'm not saved, I'll be dead and in hell, or I'll be here on this earth, and I'll go through the tribulation period. And then go to hell. So will you. Unless you're saved. So if you're saved, what about when the seventh trumpet sounds? Well, I, I'm, I'm looking to see if there are degrees of joy and rejoicing. Because if you're not excited about the things of God here, I'm wondering how much you'll be able to shout it out. When you didn't want Jesus' authority in your life as a believer here, I wonder why you'll be so excited about Jesus' authority there. The only thing I can figure is the rapture's taken place and he's given us a new body and we've been through the judgment seat of Christ. Everything's taken care of. But you're going to be somewhere. And if you're saved, then you're saved. Don't you think with a picture like this ahead of us and with the assurance that Jesus will come again, then receive us unto himself that where he is there where he may be also and understanding that Jesus is going to take all the power that belongs to him and in the final authority, he rules over everything. He takes the authority that has been his rightfully all along and he takes it and exercises it and reigns upon this earth, don't you think that if he's going to be worthy of ruling in righteousness then, that he ought to be the ruler and right of your heart right now? Amen. I said if we're excited that he's going to rule then, then surely we should be excited about making sure he rules in our life now. Amen. Now. That he is Lord of our life. That's who he is. That's who he is. If Christ is going to govern, and you know him, he should be governing you right now. If you're not saved, you don't know Jesus as your Savior. How can you look at this? How can you look at this and not at least consider? Is it a foolish thing to say no to the matter of salvation? Or what? It is. It's very foolish. God, I pray that you'd work in the hearts of your people. Yes. Possible. It's entirely possible. I'm not passing the judgment saying it's so, but it's entirely possible in this room. There are some that are saved. They truly became your child. You are their father. But they are resisting your authority in their life. Well, if they resist 
your authority in their life now, no wonder your absolute reign and righteousness in the future is not an exciting thing to them. They haven't tasted of what it's like for you to have control and for you to sit on the throne of the heart and to reign. Your son said that for this time, my kingdom is within you. I want to run the lives of my people. I am Lord. I want to be the Lord of every life. If there are some that are in this room that know I'm playing the Christian life, I'm playing games with this matter of being Christian, I'm putting limits on how God can use me or what I will do or will not do for His sake. I'm putting limits on that. I pretty much want to run things the way I want it to be. Oh God, how does that make any sense when we understand the position that Jesus holds and how dependent we are upon your Lordship to live a meaningful life. Oh God, work in the lives of your people. If there are saved people in this room that have a need of revival, I pray there'd be a reviving again. I pray there'd be a willing to humble oneself before you and say, oh God, take control of my life. Oh Lord, you are Lord. It's not that you're going to be Lord. You are Lord. You're supposed to be the Lord of my life right now. And I've been pretty much doing my own thing. My attitude is the way I think it's okay. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what God... And on and on with this haughty attitude. Oh Spirit of God, would you work in the lives of your people May, there, may we be people that are willing to humble ourselves. Those 24 elders, very significant individuals to be sure, when they saw what was taking place and they saw your authority, they fell at your feet. Can't we by faith see who you are? And that haughtiness and that head back and that unwillingness to be humble before you. Oh God, who do we think we are? I pray that your Holy Spirit would work. May we see and rejoice with those that did rejoice about your authority and about your rule. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. For any that are not saved, oh God, may your Holy Ghost convince them of their need to humble their heart and trust the work that Jesus did at Calvary. And the fact that he was raised from the dead, he conquered sin, he conquered the penalty of sin, which is death. And he's able to give and save to the uttermost them that come to God by him. I pray, God, for the salvation of any who are under this voice that are without Christ, that they be saved. Accomplish your will and purpose for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm not, I'm not going to preach again. I'm not going to beg and plead anybody to do anything. If the Spirit of God's dealt with your heart, and you know um, Jesus should have more control of my life than He has right now. Allowing who He is and who I am, He should have more control of my life than He has right now. I've rejected this, I've rejected that, kind of come making my own way. If there's somebody that says, I need revival. I don't know, I can't speak for anybody else, but I need revival. If God's dealt with your heart, why don't you just humble yourself before him and say, Oh God, here I am. I confess it. I'm in need. Your rule and your authority hasn't been near as important in my life as it should be. 
I need you. Help me. God spoke in your heart. You know that to put your head on the pillow tonight with a clear conscience you should answer God according to how he's spoken to your heart. If that's the case, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you respond to him? I can do that standing right here. Okay. That's between you and God. I just tell you this. When the 24 elders saw what was going on, they couldn't stay on their feet. They couldn't sit in those chairs in an upright position. They fell. Greatly humbled. If we embrace that by faith, what's keeping us from humbling ourselves before the Lord? Help us, Lord. Help us. He dwells in the high and holy place, and with him also that is of a humble spirit, a humble and contrite heart. I'll revive the heart of the contrite ones. I'll revive the spirit of the humble. That's what he said. That's what he'll do. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.